We're continuing now in our study in the book of Exodus. We walked from Exodus 1 to 19 to the foot of Mount Sinai, and here we are with 10 commandments, 10 ways to live, 10, 10 words from the Lord, good words. And this week, we hear the command, the imperative, you shall not steal, which of course, by nature as a command, begs to us the question, as we come to church, Few of you are wearing collared shirts. Several of you have nice shoes and jewelry. Some of people are even having a sport jacket on. Congratulations, you're looking good. We come here to be honest, not to play games, not to play church, to strip back the masks, the false selves, and say, Lord, work on us. Jesus, we want to be with you, so help us, expose us, do surgery. Because you love us and you're a good, good father. So the command, you shall not steal, is the question. Have you ever stolen anything? Let me give you a second with that one. Have you ever stolen anything? Please don't raise your hands. And, you know, for the two people in this room whose arms are crossed saying, well, of course I haven't, just give me some time, okay? Have you ever been tempted to steal anything? You saw something you didn't have that you wanted that you wanted to take. And maybe you didn't actually express your desire in the action of the taking, but you certainly went there mentally. Of course, the question under the question, the important question is why? Indeed, in 21st century America, where most of us have everything we need and then some, and even those who don't have what they need have at this point in history, uniquely, never before in, in human history, access to services which provide those needs. Why? Why do, we why do we take, why do we want to take, why do we want to take what is not ours? And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I, when I read the news, when I look around, Again, without being pessimistic or falling into despair, it, just, it does feel, though, sometimes like we live in a world of takers. That people are just out to get theirs. A lot of times you might even be in a relationship with someone and just sense, like, are they listening to me? Do they care? Or am I just kind of being used here? Am I, am I a rung on the ladder to climb up to the next step? Now, like most of you, I was raised in a Ten Commandments home. I was taught right from wrong. I was certainly taught that you don't steal. And I was taught above all things in relationship to theft, respect and honesty. And yet considering the eighth commandment hit me pretty hard this week. Not only the simplicity of it, but the extension of it, just how deep the rabbit hole goes in our own hearts. And I remembered a time, sadly, in seventh grade where I took 50 cents out of a girl's locker. I don't even know if my parents remember that. They probably don't. They blocked it out. My mom's shocked right now. And be talking to me after church. I did. Here I am, you know, at the Albuquerque Academy, you know, nicely dressed, didn't need a thing, and yet was compelled for some ignorant and foolish reason to take 50 cents out of this girl's locker. Well, of course, I was found out, and I got in trouble, and I remember sitting down with the principal at the time, and he just kind of looked at me and said, we can't have people like that 
at this school, son. What did I do with that 50 cents? Well, thankfully, I invested it in Bitcoin, so <laughs> come to my mansion. No, I went down, guilty conscience crippling me, and bought a Dr. Pepper. Again, let me just emphasize how little in life I needed to take 50 cents from someone at that point in time. And that's what's staggering. Not that I did it, but that I didn't need to do it. And lest I feel alone and isolated and embarrassed before you righteous religious folk in this confession, I will point our attention to the great 4th century saint, Saint Augustine of Hippo. The bishop, Augustine, who eventually in his coming to Christ uh, was not only a brilliant reformer and writer, philosopher, uh, but lover and planter of churches. He tells a story in his confessions in book two about a time when he was young, when he and a group of his hooligan friends, a rough Latin translation of the name of their gang would be the Destructors, went into their neighbor's yard and stole armfuls of pears. They stole a bunch of pears. And what's worse than stealing the pears is that they took them a couple neighbors down and basically dumped them at the feet of swine who could frivolously consume those pears. Now, as St. Augustine reflects on this sin from his youth, he realizes that he wasn't actually motivated by the taste of the pear, the pleasure of the pear, the enjoyment of the pear, but the power of self-interest. He simply enjoyed doing wrong for its own sake. And I quote, it was foul and I loved it. It was foul and yet I loved my own undoing. As one commentator states, trapped in his misdirected desires, disoriented affections, and love for earthly goods, in this act, the soul separates itself from God and simultaneously tries to demonstrate its power over God by breaking God's laws. In some, man, in an attempt to be as God. And I hear that story and I'm like, dang, that's kind of heavy. I think St. Augustine needs to go th see a therapist. He's 44 years old, for goodness sake. And he's reflecting back on being a 13-year-old kid stealing some pears. And hence we come to the title of the sermon, Highway Robbery, which by definition is to an exact, an exorbitant fee for a minuscule mistake. And when you hear Augustine's confession, don't you feel that way at least a little bit? Like, man, you're 44, you should be over this by now. And that would indeed be the case if the stealing of the pears were simply a, a refraction of his own in innocence and the breaking of a simple law. But Augustine knows and the scripture knows and God would have us know through Christ that, that this goes deep into our hearts. It's just far too easy to go, I don't steal anything. Check, thanks Jesus, see you later. No. So what do we do with the eighth commandment? You, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. I want to look at it in four ways this morning. 
And because we're approaching the lunch hour, I'm giving you a culinary metaphor to dad pun, sink your teeth into. RBLT, RBLT, preferably not a BLT from Arby's because that's doing damage to your own body and soul. Remember, behold, let, and turn. That's where we're going this morning. Remember, behold, let, and turn. First thing we need to do when we come to the law of God is remember the you. You shall not. You. Remember the you. The first thing we see in the you is that it's personal. Yahweh is a personal God. I am that I am. I know you. I made you. I know you by name. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I hold all things together by the power of my word. It's personal. And in this case, it's not only personal to hearing individuals, but to gathered corporate Israel. In fact, if you turn back to page 12, I will commend to you that each and every one of these yous, you shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, etc., they're all in the second person plural. Of course, when we read it, Americans, John Wayne, baby, we read it as the second person singular. No, God has gathered a corporate body, his bride, his people, a corporate Israel before Sinai to stand before his holiness. They have individual responsibility, no doubt. But as a body, they have great responsibility for one another. So remember the nature of the commands, that we might love God and be loved by God, and that we might love one another. In Exodus chapter 1, all the way up now to chapter 20, we get this beautiful unfolding history of redemption, God's great rescue plan. He has freed his people from shackles and bondage by Pharaoh in Egypt. They are free. And what does God do with his free people? Having been rescued, he now reveals himself to them. Why? He reveals himself to them so that he can be in relationship with them. And so when we come to the Ten Commandments, the law of God, we have to remember, they've already been rescued. They've already been brought through the baptismal waters of the covenant ordeal, scary, scary water stuff in the ancient Near East that is the Red Sea. They've been rescued by faith, blessed, and those who came faithlessly, Pharaoh and his army, have been judged by the covenant kept and the power of Yahweh. If rescued, now revive the world. Bring back the garden. Let's get back to the garden. So again, for Christians, that means we don't bury our head in the sand. It means we don't climb to the top of the hill and just meditate and forget everything because it's pain and suffering. No, we enter into the pain and suffering to bring beauty from ashes, to be a force of redemption in this world until someday Jesus calls you home. Israel was designed to be a light to the world, to reflect the perfect character of their God, and the character is revealed in the moral law of God. As the sun shines brightly and the moon reflects its light, Israel was to reflect their God. You know, the moon doesn't have any light in and of itself. I read this week that the moon reflects only 3 to 12% of the light of the sun, And yet, if that's true, given the size of the moon two nights ago, that's pretty impressive. I mean, you could have gone out and done yard work two nights ago. 
That moon was so big. And so some of y'all know because you couldn't go to sleep. This is how Israel is to be. God's people are to be before his law. So remember the personal you. The law here, listen, it's not provided. We have to be very careful as a means of earning merit and favor before God. This law is not given to them that they might then do these things to be righteous before God. They've already been rescued. This law is given as a means of grace to bring them into relationship with the Father and into right relationship with one another. It's given that they might know God, that they might have God, and in having God, they might have peace with each other. Peace with the God who saves, and peace or shalom with one another. And an instrument of peace to bring peace to the warring and chaotic nations. I start here with remember the you because only this can inform our understanding of the shall not and unburden us from either the despair and the guilt of our lack of righteousness or, as is far more common for church people, our sense of our own religious self-righteousness. So the law given here neither crushes God's people for they've already been resurrected from the slavery of Pharaoh, but nor does it give them some self-important sense of themselves because they're standing before the shaking, thundering mountain of Sinai and they are well aware that all they need is need. They've seen their guilt. They've received the grace of God. And therefore, the 10 words of the 10 commandments were designed to be a response of their gratitude. You want to flourish? You want to bless? You want to bring back the garden? This then is how you should live. So remember the you. Second, behold the beauty. Just, I just want to stop for a second because it's, we're so prone to just take for granted, you know, you shall not steal. And if you do steal, engage in merciful retribution, do the right thing, pay it back. We just take that for granted as if that grows on trees. And I once saw a video of a couple apes in a cage. You've always got that alpha, you know. John and I, obviously, you know, the muscles. No, no, all right. And one ape steals an apple from another ape. And within seconds, there's a gang of apes that are run by the one ape, and they just, they beat this other majestic animal to death. There it is. Life is over. Game over. This idea of you should not steal doesn't just grow on trees. Not at all. In fact, in the ancient Near East, in the ancient Near East at the time of the giving of the law, Essentially, the only penalty that we have recorded in ancient Near Eastern law codes for theft was one of two things. You either lose a hand or a foot, which is a functional death sentence in those days. You know, they didn't have OSHA. Or, in most cultures, in particular Babylon and Syria, Assyria, it was the death penalty. And yet God says to his people, No. You will respect each other. You will trust each other. You will respect the rights and the property of one another. But you will do it, not just to weed out the bad people, but because all of you are image bearers of the true and living God. The good news for us here is this. You don't even have to really like your neighbor, but you have to love him. Do not steal is predicated on respect and on trust. You may not like what your neighbor does in their backyard. Why have they moved their trash pile so close to your fence? 
You know, you're gonna have a 19 foot tall coyote fence before it's all over. You may not like what they do, but do not steal as it's understood in the context of the grace shown to the people of Israel means that love is indeed the principle required. So one commentator put it this way, respect for private possessions is a fundamental principle in the Bible. A command not to steal makes sense only if people have the right to own what cannot be taken unlawfully by those to whom they do not rightfully belong. And at the same time, this principle only makes sense in the context of a loving God's provision of his grace for those who both keep and struggle to keep the command. This is what creates a just society. Not not the death penalty for every infraction, but also not a society that's void of consequences. Imagine that. If there were no laws against stealing, you would have riots and anarchy within seconds. Instead, the gospel principle that is operative is there are real consequences for your actions, but now pay it back. You've been shown mercy, not death. Pay back what you owe. And so after Exodus 20, the book of the covenant, Exodus 21 through 23, goes into a a, a long diatribe about the nuances of the eighth commandment, especially in chapter 22. And it's all the way down from intentional theft to negligence. Here's the point. Here's the point. Here's the point about respect and trust and a just society and retribution and the fact that Yahweh gave a better law than was found in Assyrian Babylon. The point is, We are all responsible in the community of God to help one another flourish. And as we are gathered on Sunday, we are reminded that Christ has done that for us. And as we are scattered to our city, we are to go out and do that for others. Wow. (laughs) Behold the beauty. Third, let the law do its work on you. Because I think it would be easy for us at this point again to just go, okay, I've got this. Thank you. I'm an upstanding citizen here in Santa Fe. I don't know if you knew. I've gotten awards. I've been mentioned in the New Mexican. I have a, you know, I have a little trophy in my house. Let the law do its work on you. And this week, I mean, this week as I was considering, I mean, all the ways that I steal from the Lord. Let me be honest. In a sense, the Eighth Commandment is a fulfillment of all the prior commandments. When I put other things before God, I steal from his glory. When I want to make my name great, I don't honor his name. When I go to all the empty wells and broken cisterns, my idols, you know, this will make me happy, that'll make me happy, people like me, stuff, educate, you know, whatever, wherever you go to cope, to control to find that fake shalom, that's that's stealing from God's covenant promises to you through idolatry. Whenever I allow my busyness to to overwhelm me, you know, that's that's like a badge of honor for Americans in the 21st century. I'm so busy, you wouldn't even believe it. That's not a compliment. That's not only stealing from God's worship, but the promise of his rest. And it's not just vertical, it's horizontal as well when I don't honor the generations above me and the structures of authority that God's put over me, when I don't even honor the king and the emperor as Paul commands in Romans 13, I break the fifth commandment. I steal from the Lord in that way. When I allow anger 
and bitterness and unforgiveness to take root. I steal from the promises of God in forgiveness through a murderous heart. Adultery, which we heard about last week, is so obvious. I mean, I think the best example for us nowadays is probably pornography, to steal someone's worth, their purity, another person's wife, the lust of the eyes. And so we have to let the law do its work on us because these things are heart deep. There's a million symptoms we could discuss, but God wants us to go from the head to the heart and get to the disease. Someone might ask at this point, well, what about desperation? You know, what about a family that, for example, doesn't have enough bread, and so they feel compelled that the only way they can eat is to take that bread? Well, let me just tell you, first of all, the Bible deals with that. Second of all, it's, it's challenging and it's complex to deal with. The breaking of God's law is still the breaking of God's law, but a better question is this in our own day and age. Why does that scarcity exist at all? And so again, we have before the Eight Commandments individuals, individuals who indeed own property, but what we don't have is the idolatry and the false religion of individualism. In fact, you may know, and I love this, that in Leviticus 22, as the Lord is giving his law to his people, he says, look, as you plant your fields and as you harvest your fields, would you do me a favor? <laughs> Actually, God never asked for a favor. Would you please do this for your own good, for my glory? Would you leave some on the edge? And who's it for? It's for the sojourner, the alien, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan. Le don't, don't harvest your whole field. Leave some so that those who come along can glean. And then the Lord says, you know, as you're driving through Santa Fe and you see people on the corner and all these people in need, only give them part of your field if you feel like they deserve it. He does not say that. He doesn't say, set up a little deer hunting booth on the edge of your field and let people glean some of that field as long as they deserve it. He says, how about you just leave some there and let them take it? No questions asked, no conditions. Because that was to be a living, breathing, visible, tangible promise reminder to God's people that that was exactly how he had loved them. Thank God. Thank God he doesn't look at you and me and go, well, haven't decided if I'm going to love you today. Do you deserve it? I'm going to wait and see. You've only had your coffee this morning. The day is young. Thankfully, the Lord doesn't do that. That's what we mean when we talk about the gospel, the good news, the finished work of Christ, that God did what man could never do. Jesus came to do the entire work, to finish the work, to keep the law, to die for our sin, to do it all so that even in our thieving ways, there was no condition set upon us because God is just and he can't wince at sin. He's a covenant God. Do this and you will live. Do it not and you will die. Well, we're all in the do it not category. The only one who's in the category of do this and you will live is Christ himself. But the Bible tells us that if we come to Jesus by faith, we are what? Hidden with Christ in God. Finite man is a taker. Finite man is a taker because there's a scarcity of resources. We see it all the time, a scarcity mentality. God is a giver. And let me be clear here, it is not bad to have a lot of stuff. Indeed, 
I hope a lot of you work really hard and make a lot of money and let's come and do some church up in the city. Let's support local missions and global missions. Let's support all the people that have need. Let's support this church. Let's plant churches. Let's start a college ministry at UNM. Let's help plant the church up in Taos. Let's get community groups going. Make a lot of money and let's give it to the kingdom. Amen. That would be way too easy. It, you know, you know, then we would have this weird understanding that, oh, the, the people that don't have as much, they're holier and closer to God. No. You can have a little and be far from God. You can have a lot and be close because the law just won't let us make it easy. It's a matter of the heart. And this was St. Augustine's you know, amazing insight that sin isn't just the things that I do, but it's the nature within me. And if I'm really honest, I like it. I like it. The great irony, of course, and I'd love to tell this, you know, we're in church, this is the time to talk about this, is that religion is no better. Religion is no better than the obvious robber or the thief or whatever. In fact, isn't it ironic that many of the religious leaders in Jesus' own day, and by the way, let me humble myself here, I probably would have done the same thing. Accuse Jesus of stealing all the time. But you can't rob from God's glory by healing on the Sabbath. Well, you can't rob from the honor of God's name by e eating with those people. Well, you certainly can't eat with that guy. You can't have a tax collector. I mean, sinners maybe, but tax collectors, drunkards? G Jesus, do you have any idea who that woman is who just came into this house and broke that, that bottle of perfume over your feet to anoint you? And what does Jesus say as he quotes the Old Testament? To all of them. In Matthew 9, he says, Go and learn what this means. Go and learn what this means. Not the constraints of the law and a million don'ts. Instead, this I desire mercy and not sacrifice. As he quotes the Old Testament prophet. So the question for us, you and me, this morning at the bottom of the Eighth Commandment is this. Are we takers or are we givers? We are prone to wander. We are prone to take. But I, feel, I believe there's really an opportunity here for us because of Jesus. Because we too have been brought through the Red Sea by grace through faith. And we are united to the Father in the work of the Son by the power of the Spirit. One, put it, put it, one person put it this way, stealing is ultimately valuing a possession over a person. Things over trust and love and respect. But the antidote to this is simply not the self-righteous perception of the action of not stealing. Well, I don't steal. Well, congratulations. That's not the antidote. The antidote is generosity. The antidote is, gen the antidote is God, I'm going to leave even more on the edge of my field. I'm going to bless. I'm going to give. I'm going to give lavishly. I'm going to let Jesus fill up my cup, and I'm going to give whatever I have, my time, my talent, my treasure. If I have a lot, I'll give that. If I don't have much, I'll give that. The antidote is generosity, valuing a person over their works and possessions, for this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. And then he quotes Ephesians chapter 4. Let the thief no longer steal. Apparently, that was a problem in the early church. But rather, let him labor, 
Work. Work as a free man, freed from the slavery of Egypt. Work hard. Doing honest work with his own hands. But do it so that, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Anyone. Richard Foster, speaking about our holiness before the law of God, put it this way. He said, the ability to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done is the definition of our holiness. Because you have been loved and rescued, because Jesus himself has shown mercy, the ability to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done is the holiness we now bring to the world. It's all a gift from God. It's all a gift from God. We respond by gratitude. And this, of course, turns our eyes to the cross. We remember that this is personal. Remember the you. Behold the beauty of the law. It's good that God gives his law to the world to restrain evil. It would be good for governments and civil institutions to follow these laws. But the law isn't just out there and abstract and institutional. It's for us. The law does its work to not only convict us, but to show us the way of generosity. And in all this, we turn our eyes to the cross. And what do we see? We see two things at the cross. The first is we see Jesus. Jesus who did not take, but gave. Jesus who allowed by decision to have his life stolen from him by finite, taking, greedy man so that he might take up his life again for the glory of a father and give it back to all who would believe. Ultimately, corporate, religion fails, Israel failed, the first Adam failed. The only one who does not fail is Jesus, the second Adam, who in his love perfectly fulfills the law. I love the lyrics of this song, Brokenness Aside, by a little band called All Sons and Daughters. You can look it up on the interwebs later. Brokenness Aside, I am a sinner. If it's not one thing, it's another. Caught up in words, tangled in lies. How true. If you let the law do its work, we're undone. We're just like Adam and Eve. You can't stand before God naked and unashamed. We know our guilt, but the song doesn't end there. The story of redemption doesn't end there. Turning to the cross, the song says, but you are a savior and you take my brokenness aside and make it beautiful. You make it beautiful. You see, here's the promise of the gospel. You can't take. You can't steal. You can't make a life for yourself and do it on your own and pull up your bootstraps. You can't take the one thing you need. Everything we have is turning to dust. You can't take the one thing you most need, which is to be fully known and fully loved by the God who created you by his grace alone. You can only receive it as a gift. That's what we see when our eyes are turned to the cross. But you know what we also see when we look at the cross through scripture? We see the thief. We see the thief on the cross. And if you might imagine his hands being full of pears, just like Augustine, just like us. He knows his guilt. He knows he's paying a just consequence for his crimes. 
but he knows more than his guilt. And here's my encouragement for you this morning. Know more than your guilt. Know Christ. He believes that his Savior is right next to him, hanging at his side. And how does Jesus respond to the faith of a rightly adjudicated thief on a cross? Oh, to scandalize all of our idols and ideas about work and merit and earning and and being, you know, a good person and all these things, he looks this man in the eye and says, today you will be with me in paradise. And this is the promise of the good news for us this morning. This was my joy this week as I studied this text and I was like, whoa, I'm here. I steal God's time. I steal time from, I just, I do all, I do it. I'm here, but here's my joy. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Or to summarize the beautiful words of the prophet Isaiah, spoken by Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. A bruised reed, he looks at our brokenness. A bruised reed, he will not break. That's us. A bruised reed, he will not break. A faintly burning wick, he will never extinguish. So even as the law reveals our need, we remember that all we need is need. And whether you have pears in your hands or not, hear the words, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for those good words. Words that we could not and did not earn for ourselves. This is the grace our God, that you show, have shown your people from day one. Even after Adam and Eve sinned, they were naked and ashamed and exposed. They despised their vulnerability. They were undone. What did they do, Lord? We remember. They ran. They tried to hide. Adam, blessed Adam, the husband, tried to blame his wife. They tried to cover themselves in fig leaves like so many of us do all the time, hiding behind little false selves. But you are a savior and you take brokenness aside and make it beautiful. What did you do, Lord? You took an animal. You shed its blood for them to atone for their sin, to be a placeholder pointing to Christ, the pure and spotless lamb. But you did more than atone for their guilt in the garden, Lord. You clothed them in the skins of that animal. In their nakedness and fig leaves, you said you're not alone. You clothed them just as you clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. And may we see that now as we come to this table. This is a table, Lord, where we, if it were just the law, we would be totally undone. The law and the letter kills, but the Spirit brings life. So Holy Spirit, connect us here to all the promises of Jesus. Not because we've got it all together, but through even the smallest mustard seed of faith. And would you clothe us in your righteousness? Would you remind us that just like our first parents, exposed and needy, you didn't come to them with finger wagging and shame, but you came to them with a meal. And you invite us to this meal, the meal of Jesus. May we come by faith and feast on these promises. Amen.